Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is a great writer, full stop. Um, man, I, I read both of your books, each one the, 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 the day it came out, and, and you know, uh, the way the book business is now, like that just, uh, most people don't do that anymore. And most authors don't demand that of you. There's so much available, but I loved the first book so much that I, I, the second, the second, you know, the second book came out, I, I had to read it and I was not uh, disappointed in any way. And I, I, I wrote you after your first book and then wrote you again after the second one. And I was like, we got to talk. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. That said, the first book, which is called Losing My Cool, and the new book is called Self-Portrait in Black and White. The first book would be very easy to have a conversation about. It's a father-son story. It's a coming-of-age story. And it's quite universal, I think. Yeah. And I imagine the reaction you got to it was... was it's strange. I mean, that book came out, Losing My Cool came out in 2010. So this was really a different time in the age of social media, and the reception was pretty much along the lines of um, it was a coming-of-age father-son story. I think if the book were to come out now, the critiques I made about hip-hop culture throughout the book and the pressure that um, imposes on black male identity especially, um, I think it would, have been a, it would have been a different thing, and maybe some of the father-son angle would have gotten... Um, submerged under the criticism of, uh, of the cultural critique. Although, although I, I understand that point. The, so the, but, and I do think if you're going to read Self-Portrait, and I think you should, you should read Losing My Cool first because there are references made in the second book to your dad that one really understands so much more if, if they've read mm -hmm. the first book. The thing is, in the first book, you're quite tempted by hip-hop hip -hop culture. In fact, you embrace it and you leave the comfort of your father's den and library to go explore, putting you in, in a place of tension with him. That's right, yeah. And, and here, this is an adult book written about you now in the role of the father, trying to understand what, how you're going to be that person for your daughter. How do you impart yourself, your world, your ideas of... Of, of, of life into the next generation. Yeah, and so I didn't, I certainly didn't set out to be a serial memoirist, and I need to, my third book needs to not be a memoir. I disagree. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was interesting. I was a son in the first book, and I'm a father in the second book, and the, the roles really um, shifted. And, and in the different positions I occupied in relation to um, my father and my daughter, um, it shifted my ideas and understanding of myself uh, in terms of racial identity and things like this as well. So um, in the first book, I'm really working through um, a kind of uh, constructed racial identity that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to perform in many ways. I'm trying to live authentically. Uh, I would suggest two different identities, right? The one your father is trying to impart and the one your community is trying to look exactly. Well, in yeah, the there's, a, there's book, a tension between. In the first book, there are two yeah. different identities. Oh, yeah. But I didn't understand that my father's was actually. Of, 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 I the black identity I was seeing was also generationally split from the hip hop era. My father's old enough to be my grandfather. He was coming from the pre civil rights era, and so I'm trying to reconcile a kind of black male authenticity. And in the second book, because my daughter, who 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 was born in France and who. Um, Essentially, like looks Swedish, you know. Standards to be what the yeah. word we would use is white here. She made me question and ultimately reject the entire racial paradigm that we that we accept as kind of 
the system of reality that we inhabit. Yeah, so the, I, I want to just say a few things. The reason that I really wanted to talk to you, and I think differently than, in a different way than maybe some people is, I, uh, you're obviously a deep and clear thinker and a searcher, but more than that to me, you are a writer's writer. Uh, you are somebody who takes me on a journey where I'm, even if I have a violent disagreement with your conclusions, I am completely empathetic to your journey because of your skill as a writer. And I'm very interested in how you're able to write the way that you are, sort of how you were, you were trained to. But also, um, if I'm being bracingly honest with myself, that's an easy place to hide because <laughs> um, I've been warned off having this conversation with you. Really? And, yeah, I have. <laughs> and I don't know, like the listeners may not, because uh, because um, as a uh, as a, a white male in his fifties, uh, who's a liberal, mm-hmm. um, I've read it. I've read as much libertarian theory as anybody can, and I understand conservative political theory. I'm a liberal too, by the right, way. Right. Yeah, I yeah, think, so I think I, that, I, that space gets contested these days. People define how what you're supposed to think is liberal, but I think we're both liberals here. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but uh, if you speak to professors at black studies departments at the top universities in the world, um, you are hot button. I was at an event. I mean, you know, I mean, you know this. You're like, yeah. I mean, you do know. And, and I'm worried that I was, what, what I, essentially is that there's a conversation you are having with, uh, I would say, other black intellectuals, though I know you, you reject that, with intellectuals, some of whom identify, to use your language, some of whom identify as black Americans. You're having a conversation with them that I believe, by definition, I can barely understand, really. Right? That there are levels of this discourse that matter, you know, that, that are, it's important that people like me read your book, but you're actually not having the conversation with me. Well, actually I am because part of my argument is not about um, stepping outside of blackness or, or, or denying that blackness exists. It's about um, white people trying to convince white people to step outside of whiteness because the racial paradigm demands blackness because it demands whiteness. Blackness is, informs whiteness and whiteness informs blackness. I, I'm asking people to, to question and, and step outside of race. Sure, and you draw your grandmother. You draw your grandmother-in-law. Is it your grandmother-in-law, the one who has yeah, yeah. You, you draw your grandmother-in-law in this way. Or your mother's, is it your mother's mother that you go to her house or your wife's? It's my wife's uh, right. grandfather's wife. Right, your wife's wife. grandfather's yeah. wife. And yeah. you draw her incredibly sympathetically for the limits of her experience, but you also use her as a stand-in for all of us Well, to get beyond... I, all of you don't have kind of like statues of... Yes, we don't. <laughs> of course, we don't. The, she has a, um, an old kind, a of, kind slave. of slave's head on her coffee table, like a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a Sambo-esque and, kind and, of figure. And, and you draw that to sort of talk about the fact that if she could love you and you could love her, we can all get beyond this. But another reading of that is it's hopeless. Yeah, some people would say that she should have been, I mean, she's 90 years old, that I should have called her out and checked her and educated her. But I also felt that like, what are we trying to get to? Are we trying to get to a world that's actually, are we trying to get to a world where we call out everybody for the transgressions? Are we trying to get to a world where we actually can live kind of on equal terms with each other and accept each other and and love each other? And, And then if you can get to that, you don't always have to police every transgression in the same way. Sure, but how do, you, how do you personally deal with the fact that 
your peers in the end, not leaving the race aside, although I think it's, if you take both books together, um, the opinion of people whose uh, childhood experience was like yours does matter to you. The fact that, that you might be viewed by them now as a traitor, um, and this is the part that, as a uh, as a, a white interlocutor, that makes it hard for to like have it. But I have to do it because you're here, and I don't. I need to understand it. Right? You've written these books. How do you uh, how do you grapple internally with the fact that there are certain gatherings that if you walked in, it would become uncomfortable? For you I now? find that face to face things never. I've never had a bad face to face. I don't mean someone's gonna say let's yeah. fight. I just mean. You're judged. Yeah, there's a lot of judgment because I feel like there's this sense that if you are to deny the validity of race, you're somehow denying the validity of racism, which I do go to lengths in the book to try to be very clear on that. I'm, not, I'm saying that society can be racist and we can also try to push for a, a, a deeper recognition that race itself is a harmful construct that has to be rejected and that you can't kind of transcend racism so long as you accept the categories that, that necessitate it. But, but then when that comes to things like affirmative action, mm -hmm. like once you say, because I, re I reread um, uh, Case for Reparations this morning. Mm -hmm. That's a very good piece. And you grapple with the That's piece in the book. Piece. Well, the Case for Reparations, I think, is the finest piece he's published. Right. Well, but when, so and, I'm, and I find, I I find, it, I find I it a find persuasive it. case. I actually think that a large, like getting towards a place where you could try to transcend racial categories would require some kind of repair towards the communities that have been harmed by these constructs in the past. So I think that getting past race and reparations together makes sense. They're not actually So like, his conclusion of let's investigate. Yeah, like, well, the great thing I about agree it, with that. And, and it's interesting, right? You're, I've said to a few people, because I was in an event and I was talking to sort of a leading scholar, not not Mr. Coates, I was talking to somebody else, mm -hmm. but a, a very, very famous person around your age, or famous within this, I mean, famous in intellectual circles, around your age, about this. And I said, have you read the book? And the guy just went, oh man, Chatter and Williams, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you should. And I said, simple question, have you read the books? And he said, I don't know, do I, do I really have to? And I went, I said, no, and this is someone who's read as much as you and I, like, you know, someone who's clearly read as much as the two of us have, like a, a, a true scholar, not a fake scholar. But he's like, I got the message. And I said, no, I, I actually don't think you did. Mm -hmm. I said, first of all, the prose is great. But beyond that, the point is subtle. But it's difficult in this environment for the point to be subtle, isn't I it? I find that, that this is one of the worst environments for subtlety. And like social media really exacerbates that. It's hard to... People basically... Um, one understand which side you're on, and there's ways of talking that signal your side. And this you is say what I'm this, talking about. Yeah, yes. this is complicated actually, and it's not so we can't just boil it down to which side. The side I'm on is trying to always follow where I think the truth is leading, uh, even if it's uncomfortable to certain presuppositions I start with. You know, that's that's the side I'm on. But of course I'm on the side of I don't want to live in a racist society. I don't I don't believe what happened to my father in America. Um, is just, I believe that certain people, the government did not, um, in fact, fulfill its duties to them, and, and you could make a case for why they need to be repaired. 
that that's the side I'm on. But I don't think that that means that uh, I blindly kind of like get into this tribalism, this competition of tribes, where you say, well, you know, race might not be real, but we've been made black, and so we're going to reify that concept and double down on it, and kind of get into a similar dialogue with the racists who also believe that race is real and must never be given up. You know? But isn't it tricky? So I'm an atheist mm-hmm. and I'm a Jew. And I can't, I don't understand, and I kept writing this in the margin when I was reading your book, because I don't, and, and, and this is sort of what I've talked to my kids about. Um, you grow up as a Jew, even in America, you evaluate almost everyone on some cellular level based on whether they would hide you if uh, a new uh, sort of decision yeah. to murder you came along. And even if, as you grow, you divorce yourself from a lot of the cultural signifiers, um, you know, you don't watch the Woody Allen movies as much, but if you, if you divorce yourself from the cultural signifiers, when they decide it's Jew killing time, I don't get to tell them I'm not a Jew. And you don't get to tell them you're not black. That's right. That's right. And, and so f- because of that fact, I don't understand the utility of deciding to... Be, because ultimately... You know, I'm friend. James Blake is my friend, mm-hmm. not not British James Blake, um, the tennis player. The tennis player. By every outward manifestation, James Blake transcends what one would con- right. Just education, wealth, status, fame, none of that mattered. When he got thrown on the ground yeah. by the NYPD, none of that mattered. And um, so, how do you just talk us through what your thesis is? Sure. And how it speaks to those things. So, I mean, that's, of course, a very valid concern. Your identity is always going to be a negotiation between who you think you are and what the world projects back on you and accepts from you. I can't just walk outside and say I'm Japanese or something like that, uh, or a squirrel or whatever. No one, uh, it's a negotiation. Um, So what I'm asking for is I'm asking for a kind of, I, I would love that together our norms change. But, of course, you can't just deny race and step outside of it uh, and be protected from anybody else projecting racial categories on you. Um, with that said, I don't think that you have to accept the world's categories thrust on you as valid. I think you can constantly, you, you can get, you can go through what James Blake went through, my brother went through that, I write about that in the first book, and you can say that that's not, that's not based in reality. I reject that, I'm dealing with the consequences of racism, but I reject the validity of the categories in the first place. So I, so I, I, I but then you also deny dispatch. I mean, you speak, you spend a lot of time in the book on, on trying to thread this, this, this question of then when are you denying this subset of attributes or cultural uh, distinctions that have been labeled as a part of your culture, mm-hmm. when you reject that, are you saying to the people who want, of that culture who want to hold on to that, well, that's not valid either. No, no, You don't no, no. get I'm to saying... grab on to B.B. King. You don't get to grab on. No, because you use music as an example. Of course, of... I'm saying that, uh, and some people said that this is having it too easy, but I'm saying that I don't think you have to um, loosen your cultural allegiances or, 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 or no longer enjoy the music or no longer think that that's part of like a culture of a community of people that have been described as black in this country. I mean, it requires some... It requires some subtlety. It's, it, it, it's, it, I think that you can have your cultural affiliations, but you can simply reject that there's anything about it having to do with blood and skin or genes. There's not. It's a community of people that lived in America during certain periods of time and faced certain challenges and overcame them in certain ways and created certain 
food ways and music traditions, and they didn't do it in other parts of the world at other times. You know, that's, that's a people that you can feel allegiance to. Some of us are descended from them, and some of us are not, but that's a cultural community that we can respect. But there's nothing about blood or skin in that. Other than that the blood and skin led to some of the experiences that forced That's right. the creation of the work. That's right. Which then gets passed down, though, as a salve, right, for the next generation of people. That's right. So their connection to it is incredibly deep. And don't you think that... I think I you can preserve how you process, that. though, that that, that feels threat. People, I, I believe people feel threatened by this idea that they don't get to claim it in the same way as being cellular. Because that's what yeah. you're saying. You're saying it's no longer yeah. cellular. You're saying there's nothing that bonds you to Dexter Gordon in a cellular way. Because I don't believe that white people are bonded to William Shakespeare either. I believe that I can participate in William Shakespeare if I care enough about it, the same as if, you know, if I'm an English guy. I really do believe that. I don't think that's anything about blood that makes... Because I, I can't play jazz. I can appreciate it, but, you know, Dexter Gordon's achievements are not my own, you know? <laughs> Sure, uh, and, and and neither do I think that the and shame Hemingways and, aren't Hemingways aren't mine. Like nor are they if, most white people's. And 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 kind of I don't think that you should be overly pr too proud about what people who came before you did, or too ashamed of what they went through and suffered. I think you should be aware, and it should inform how you understand the world. But it is not you. I think that actually what I'm arguing for and what upsets some people is a kind of more individualist understanding of, of human life. I don't think that our ancestors' victories and defeats um, outweigh the present struggle that we're in and the present achievements and, and, and defeats that we're having and the present life we're making. But doesn't, doesn't that allow you to... Doesn't going down that road allow you to... to take a Clarence Thomas sort of a view on things like affirmative action. I hope not, because I think that uh, groups of people, I don't believe that race, I don't believe race is real, but I believe groups of people have uh, suffered in ways that we can point out. Disadvantaged groups. Yeah, there are disadvantaged groups. Now, I do think that affirmative action, um, look, it can get things wrong when it goes just by abstract color categories. That's how you end up in an elite school in every single black person is either an immigrant from another country uh, and their parents are doc right. Nigerian doctors or, or they're, or they're uh, upper middle class lawyers from, from Los Angeles. But actually it's addressing none of the kind of harm that was done to actually impoverished groups. Well, but that's because as Coates talks about, I mean, that's because you're not allowed to frame it as reparations now. That's right. There's a, it's a very watered down version of um, an affirmative action that's meant to... Uh, remediate uh, the actual harms. Right, exactly. So, we, but, but, there, but it's so the racial category that obscures the actual, uh, the, the, what needs to be done. It's the racial category that confuses things. It's, it's, if, if you were trying to help um, poor blacks who have, who have suffered in this country, that'd be one thing. But just helping anybody who can claim a heritage oftentimes just uh, doesn't get to any of the harm, actually. And, and, and so what would your answer to it be? My answer to it would be to, look, my son looks Swedish. I mean, he, is, he, he has straight blonde hair and he has blue eyes and he has pale skin. And he's technically um, 
a quadroon by the old definition. He is, he's 25% uh, West African descended, and he's a direct descendant of slaves. Under the laws of affirmative action, he's entitled to preferential treatment. I mean, you could make an argument for why he hasn't in, he's not inheriting certain property that he might have had uh, if he weren't a descendant of slaves. But by and large, he's fine in this society, and for him to take a slot through affirmative action really doesn't make sense. But it, the way that the the way that the um, and then what? So and then and then taking that out, you are you one of those people who feels like then uh, he or other people would judge and and think less of uh, that he was there for that reason? Or like I'm trying to understand because you just quickly kind of said, well, maybe some of his. Um, property would have been taken but it's not just that it's as you said the way your dad was treated the way your father was treated like to divorce him from that seems to some to be and this is what i said as a white dude i feel weird even in having the conversation but you wrote the book and i read it so closely i i, I have to you know where should we draw those lines like i doesn't he have some birthright to that in the same way that uh, harvard admits 23 percent or whatever it is of um, legacy kids, why shouldn't they also, if they're doing that, why well, shouldn't that's they a type of affirmative admit, action. <laughs> why shouldn't they admit people who are legacies right. of, sla of American I, slavery? I guess it's what you're trying to accomplish. I, I, I think that legacies are hard to defend in a lot of ways. It's just financial, right? Sure. Uh, but okay, so that, that's the best defense for it, is that you want to have people who are highly committed to your institution who are going to donate. But in terms of affirmative action for blacks, I think that when you make it a racial category, instead of trying to make it for people who actually have been disadvantaged in this society, then you miss the point. I think oftentimes when we're talking about in America, we don't talk well about class. When we're, talk we're using racial language to talk about things that are really class, ethnicity, um, cultural traditions, lots of different things, but we just use the language of black and white because that's what we do here. But if you want to actually repair harms, you would probably have to get into a much more fine-toothed kind of discussion about class because the fact is that in the year 2020, plenty of black people are actually okay. Plenty of black people are fine, and plenty of black people are still struggling, but when you substitute anybody who can be called black, whether that be someone coming from Nigeria or Jamaica or anything like that, into a category because it's based on, on but, but you're such physical a careful, characteristics. You're such a careful writer, but words like plenty are so inexact, right? As, a, as, a, as we're having the conversation, when you say plenty are fine and plenty aren't, the numbers seem to suggest that percentages of disproportionately not disproportionate, sure. right? But not at Harvard, not at the places where affirmative action is really working. Sure. I mean, I understand. I understand. You're saying at, at Harvard. I'm saying in terms of affirmative action, plenty of blacks, the racial category, I think, misses the point. I would just say like I, one of my son's friends at Harvard, he's at, he graduated two years ago, but one of his friends, I don't want to, I'm not going to identify the I don't want to identify the young man, but I say this, he came from a school that had never sent anyone to an Ivy League uh, college. They didn't even know how to apply. He was so poor, like in the third worst school in the worst state, like as bad a sort of profile as you could imagine. He, you know, got need blind, admitted, uh, got to go. I'm sure the fact that, he, and I remember talking to him in his first year and he was like, uh, I remember we were all walking together. Um, from, back from uh, some restaurant in, in Davis Square or something. And, and he said the, the rest of the kids were up ahead. And he was like, I can never catch up to them. I don't know how to catch up. 
you know, that whole thing Gladwell talks about, about when you're, mm -hmm. but by the time he graduated, he'd gone all over the world. He's, you know, because of the, some groups he was a part of, he's like thriving in the world. And I saw firsthand, he's exceptional. I mean, he's, tw as Coates talks about, he's twice as good, like mm -hmm. as everybody else. He's mm -hmm. an exceptional human being, exceptionally brilliant, exceptionally gifted. But I, I just looked at that and I thought, well, what an amazing, even though he felt out of, uh, his child is now going to be that one That's step right. further. That's right. And it gave me some sense of like, well, if this happened in far greater numbers, there would just be far greater chances. That's right. But, but part of that is the identity, isn't it? Well, what you're talking about sounds a lot like class to me. I mean, oftentimes the kid who's getting that same affirmative action boost is already from a family that's 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 doing a lot better than that. That's that at elite schools. That's often the case. I mean. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that was certainly what it looked like when I was at Georgetown. You know, right. it was, it was, it, there were a lot of students um, who were not in his position who had gotten a bump that way. So I, I'm, I'm in favor of affirmative action, but I'm in favor of affirmative action that doesn't only take the elites of the, of the historically oppressed group and further lift them. What is it the emotional truth for you that because the, the book reads incredibly like we're having a conversation sort of about um, the broader meanings but in both your books I'm incredibly struck by your emotional clarity and your ability so I have a technical question and then I, I guess my technical question is for, for, for writers is what does your draft process look like in terms of the way in which you're you're able to connect emotionally and then and, and, and able to do that thing where you've transferred the emotion from, from you to the reader. I want to know what that process is like because, you know, first drafts that are very emotional suck often. <laughs> so I'm interested in that transfer. And then I'm also interested, though, in your own emotional journey. And I think that made this the story you wanted to tell. Yeah. So talk about both those things in any way you want. So both of these books started with an argument that was forming in me. Um, with Losing My Cool, I was in grad school at, at NYU and um, I was working on an assignment for class and it was, it was an argumentative essay and it was like, um, I started with the idea that black culture and the hip hop generation that really shaped me was not black culture, it was, it was a narrow kind of black street culture that had come to stand in for the whole. And so I, you know, I started by wanting to write an essay, an argument, and then I found myself always finding like anecdotes or scenes or heard my father's voice talking to me and that kind of kept coming into the into the polemic and um, those were the parts of the book that oftentimes editors and agents said that were really resonating with them so I was just learning to write at that point. I had not published anything. Were you, you, you were attempting to make an argument actually not do a memoir. Right. You weren't That's trying right. to tell an emotional story. No, not at first. You weren't aware the shape of this was about you and your dad? No, not until I kept hearing his voice. Every time I was trying to make a point, his voice would come in and I'd be kind of speaking to him on the page. And then I realized that that was resonating with readers, but it was also kind of, um, it, was a, it was more effective argumentation actually by, by showing and not just telling, you know? And so again, with Self-Portrait in Black and White, I wanted to make a case against race, but I found that, you know, these cases have been made already. And I'm not saying any argument that's not been out there, but I found that my experiences could kind of elucidate or, or bring to life certain ideas and points that resonated with, with me in other books like Racecraft or Against Race by Paul Gilroy. I found that like my life had kind of 
um, offered a few illustrations that I hoped I, if I could if I could convey them. You know, what is it what does it mean to be made black in a family where you have a racist grandfather and he and he throws away his relationship with his family over believing that the only difference that matters is skin. And then on, as he's dying, he realizes what is stupid. I mean, yeah, that you know? stuff's brutal. I mean, for me, yeah. that kind of that kind of shows the superficiality of the racial categories we inhabit and the porousness of them because. I look like that man, but he would put me in a different racial box. Uh, that kind of made the argument more vivid for me. And so what I hope is to just try to find the language to convey that on the page. And the process is quite a lot of drafts. You know, I will always have like a scene or an image and I have tons of notes and then, you know, it's a lot of reading. But I didn't have the book. I didn't understand how to do the book. In, I mean, I knew I had a book I wanted to write when my daughter was born, but I didn't understand how to finish the book until almost the very end when I was doing a profile of this artist and philosopher named Adrian Piper, and it was in talking to her, and she'd already had some of these um, ideas. Yes. Uh, it was in talking to her that she kind of gave me per permission to go all the way through with the conclusions I was afraid to, to actually articulate. You were afraid because you knew that there would be this... That some people whose opinions mattered to you. No, not at all. Not, no, why you were afraid? I was afraid because I was afraid of uh, feeling that was I in some way being disloyal to yeah. to my ancestors. Was I in some way, if I was moving past and moving my children away from a kind of ancestral guilt, was that morally wrong? And she just said, you know, if your daughter doesn't have this guilt or have these problems or this pain, isn't that? Um, unequivocally good. She can have like respect, she can have an understanding of her history, but if she doesn't feel guilt and pain, why would you want to impose that on her? And I'd never heard a black or a Jewish friend ever say that about thinking back on, you know, ancestral, um, in the press groups, you often do feel an attachment to the pain because if you lose it, you, you're separating yourself from the people you love. But she kind of helped me see it from a different angle. And so then I felt I had the language to finish the book and to say, I want to step outside of the all-American skin game. I want to retire from the all-American skin game. As my, as my buddy Stanley Crouch always called it, which I think it really gets to the point. It's a, it's, it's a game, you know? I loved his essays. Yeah. I used to love He's He's game. brilliant. You know, I, we lack a voice like Stanley still, Crouch. He doesn't, I mean, he's, yeah. I mean, Unfortunately, I, no. Right. I read uh, every month. I mean, I would read all his essays. That guy was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm older than you, but by uh, some, but I, we grew up reading a lot of the same stuff, I think. Um, is there catharsis in it for you as you're writing, or do you, or have you sort of gone through the emotions before you, do you wring it out before you write? No, the writing is really, is, is very cathartic, actually, especially with the first book. I think I worked, I worked out a lot of um, things that were with me from high school and college when I wrote that book in my mid-20s. And then this book, like, I, I'm the type of person that often only understands something once I set it down on paper. Once I work through that kind of process, I'm not, I'm much less um, verbal uh, just speaking and, and working out ideas uh, in, in talking. I think they really kind of, they kind of um, make them, things make themselves known to me on the page. Do you journal? Um, I now I less I used to do notebooks and stuff, but now it's all electronic. But same idea, yeah. I do morning pages every day. You do you really? Every day. It just how how much do you get three, a day? Three longhand pages. Wow. You know the true Julia Cameron. Yeah. Three longhand wow. pages. Wow. Since when? It's how I became a writer. Like for 20, for years, years you've been. Years, wow. You know, I mean, I'm sure I've missed some more. Like when we're shooting, mm -hmm. 
occasionally I'll miss a morning, but I feel it. And then I go like the next day and I do it again. That's great. I basically do it every day for the reason you're talking about it. I suddenly understand what I've been, th- I, you know, you walk around, you have no fucking idea. It's a jumble in your you head. Just, it is. Yeah, you have no you know? fucking idea what you're thinking about. You kind of do. But then when you just journal free, for me, free writing, mm-hmm. so that's what, you know, un, without a subject, just free writing, suddenly I'll be like, oh yeah, that's the answer to that scene. Or that's the answer to that moment with my kid. Or that's one of my kids. Or that's the answer. It shows up for me on the page uh, as, as well. I, I agree. I mean, I think talking, real conversation works similarly for me, but there is something about the page. So you can have those moments of catharsis on the page. Talk a little bit more about uh, as you're writing, because like uh, your word choice is so thoughtful and you have a huge expansive vocabulary from your dad and from your <laughs> that own, is from, just your, from, a dad, from yeah. your dad, but also from your own work. But even a moment ago, you said, you know, the part's standing in for the whole and you chose not to use the word synecdoche, which is a word, <laughs> you know, you have that word, uh, you chose not to use it. So and you hardly hesitated, but it was clear like that word occurs and then you just move past it. So, t- t- and, I, and I think many young writers make the mistake of if they know the word synecdoche, they have to use it. Um, and sometimes you should use it, by the way. Sometimes it can surprise in a certain way and yeah. it can really hammer home. I, you know, I didn't know, yeah. I, know, I mean, when Wallace used it that, in that yeah. first thing, it was like, what the fuck is that? You know, way before the movie. But um, how do you think about your ideal reader? Because it doesn't seem to me you're just writing for the uh, other other professors are people like you know it yeah. does seem like so so just yet it's clear you you don't want to leave them out either I think that Edmund Wilson's um, idea of what good writing is force clarity and was in power or uh, is, is 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 what is for in simplicity you know you don't want to lose somebody um, by being overly verbose or by or by just kind of using words to show that you um, can make something more complicated where it doesn't need to be. I just think that good writing is about uh, varied language, but it's also it's really about simplicity, you know. Uh, and good writing is oftentimes stripping down, you know, stripping things down until until you can't take anything else away without losing something, but there's nothing extra there that, that weighs it down. So my writing process is often, you know, I'm editing sentence by sentence as I go through. I don't really write like jumbled, like big expansive first drafts and then edit. I, I, I can't move to, a net, to another paragraph until I think I've really polished the preceding paragraph. Do you paragraph. read that paragraph the next, like, do you read yesterday's work? Today or yes, every I cannot like me too. Uh, leave me too. It no, I have yeah, to. I have to. Some That's why oftentimes the, the beginnings are so much more polished than the ends because you've gone over them every time. I have to do it. I don't understand how to move forward. I, I can't Even, move forward if I feel there's something messy behind me. Which I think is why the morning pages are so good for mm-hmm. me because they make me it gets blow. It going. They just make me blow yep. with, without um, the otherwise like the constraint thing That's of right. I have to look at the day's work before. So if I've already done something, it like kind of, at least I'm moving. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not paralyzed. You, you know? Yeah. There is a kind of paralysis that can come with that. I mean, I spent, it took me nine years between the two books, which is kind of shameful. Although I, I, I spent three years on a novel that I never, I never felt was done and I've kind of put it aside. So I wasn't just spending nine yeah. years on one book, but sometimes these things that my wife has published three novels, nine years apart, basically. Oh, really? Yeah, eight maybe eight between two of them you know eight and then nine in some way they're hard mm-hmm. books are hard books are hard and I felt like I also had to do quite a lot of living to write the second book I had to live with my children and live with my kind of 
um, new reality and, and, and live through some of the ideas that I was intuiting and, and feel them in my own life before I was able to put it down. So who is your ideal reader, though? My ideal reader is, um, it's a kind of, it's a person that just is open-minded and wants to, wants to be persuaded. You know, I, I, I don't want to write for someone who necessarily already agrees with me. I always think of trying to convince, bring someone over, persuade, maybe seduce through some language. I love it when people say that they don't necessarily agree with me, but they like the, the thought process or, you know, I mean, that, I think it would be really boring to just uh, sing for the chorus or preach to the chorus, it's the choir. That's an interesting thing about books now. They used to, be, and, and it's, I think, has to do with this judgmental thing. I hadn't thought of it until yeah. right now, is that books used to be the beginning of a conversation. But now there's a finality to a book. We have the beginnings of the conversation on all sorts of other media, in all other That's places. Right, yeah. So when you write a book, it's not taken as the beginning of a conversation. It's taken as this is my conclusion. That's impoverishment. And you're yeah. wrong if you disagree. So that it, the book, even if you didn't write it with an exclamation point at the end, it is received as though it has an exclamation point. You're absolutely point right. End. And you now have situations like Charles Murray's new book on, on genetics and why there are genetic differences between racial groups. On the first page, he says something like, um, if you don't already agree with this, this book is not for you. Well, I think that guy's the devil. Just let me just say, I think that guy's the devil. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he, he's, he, I mean he's, he certainly is somebody who, if you're going to make uh, extraordinary claims, uh, your readership shouldn't be restricted to people who already take, you know? Yes, of course. No, I mean, that, that, yeah. Um, when, I mean, when I listened to that podcast of Ezra uh, Klein, and uh, did you hear that Ezra Klein and, and um, Sam Harris's podcast? I mean, Ezra, I thought that destroyed him. I, I, I'm not for deplatforming anybody, but I have no interest in ever listening to or reading that guy's. Oh, but Charles Murray. Charles work. Murray. No, I mean, well, I'll read any. I'll, I will read uh, Carl Schmidt because I think that you can find, even if you profoundly disagree with someone, even if someone's politics are evil, it doesn't mean that they don't like have anything that you need to see because you need to, even if it's just to sharpen your own arguments and yes. views, I will read Charles Murray, but um, I haven't really because I, he's not even attempting not to persuade. Good, honestly, the truth is, you know, it's propaganda. I looked at the bell curve when it came out and I was like, oh, this guy's just a, I mean, for me, um, if you're a bad writer, I can't, it's, there's no time. Right. I agree with you. I just you. don't have the I time. Agree like you. engage me. Yeah. I'd much rather read someone I did like that. Um, I, I'd much rather, you know, read like some young person who's, even if I wildly does it, who's like very good at communicating their thoughts. 100% agree with you. I mean, a, guy, a conservative writer who I don't agree with a lot of his conclusions, but Christopher Caldwell, he's a, he's a very good and careful and, and beautiful writer. You can, you can get something out of that. Right. No, and I, th I think, like, I really don't agree with Coleman Hughes very often. But uh, I think, Coleman, I, yeah, Coleman's I, a, he's a really he's interesting just, guy. I, I've met him, and You've I, him, yeah. I think I've really enjoyed talking to him. I don't agree with many of his conclusions, but I'm happy to read him because he's to so... To see how his mind's working. He's a very bright person, and he's a very good writer. He is. For someone his age, it's crazy. Uh, and uh, so I'd rather read him and try to understand what he's you know, like why he's seeing the world this way, even if I completely don't, yeah. uh, don't agree w with him. Do you want people like Ta-Nehisi Coates reading the book? I'd love it, but he wouldn't. Uh, I believe, in fact, I think he said that 
he has no interest. I, I would love to engage people like that in, 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 in serious dialogue, but oftentimes um, those are exactly the people who, like, like the scholar you said, you mentioned earlier before, those are the people that have an idea about which team you've signaled you're on or you're not on uh, passionately enough, and then, and then they're kind of dismissive towards it. Right. Well, they f or they feel that it's not it's counterproductive. Mm -hmm. well, it's not time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's his, like not, his words at one point were that he didn't want to give any extra attention to it because he already doesn't agree with. But it. I did find it. Then I did find it interesting. You know, reading articles about you also that you'll reference Baldwin as sort of a justification. Absolutely. But now you're not claiming Baldwin as a black writer, right? As a, I'm claiming his as him as yeah, a genius, but right, he but it participates is in a black tradition. But it is a sig it, so, but. He participates in a tradition of, of writing and preaching and, and, and use of language, and he comes from a community, absolutely. But Baldwin, you know, he's one of those guys that arrived here decades ago saying that race is a delusion and that it's, it's impossible to ask people to... But to he to, wouldn't to, have thought there's an escape from well, he said, he's, really. he's, he's, he's What he said is that it's impossible to, to, to demand that we do away with race, but we owe our, we owe our children the impossible. We have to get past this delusion because delusions Do destroy us. Individually or culturally? Culturally. Right. He believed that, and he wrote for that. He, and that's kind of what I'm trying to say. I don't think that tomorrow or when we wrap this podcast, we're going to walk in the street and we're not going to be racialized. But, but, but I believe that you can't just stumble by accident into the society you hope to be in. You have to, you have to envision it first and try to get there. Do you think if you'd had, I mean, you make this point about your, your daughter won't have to experience what your brother experienced. But do you think if you'd happened to have a, a, a child who had darker skin, you would have still armed them with hey, the world's going to treat you in certain ways that will put your life in jeopardy. And don't you, so this is the question, right? Do, if we deny these things, how do we protect those that we love? If I, I deny I, yeah. the Jewishness, right? How do I protect my grandkids? Well, Jewishness is different because it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be a religion and a culture, but not necessarily a race, right? Although other people can racialize it when they look at you and project that onto you. Well, but other people have decided it's a race. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course it's not a race. But other people have decided it's a race. You can be attacked for being. You're not yeah. white. Well, you're not white, right? You're, you're not white. If To the white supremacists, I'm not a white person. They put an asterisk on it. Yeah, More sure. than an asterisk. I, I, have to go on the, I have to go on the line to the death camps. Um, but, and so how do you arm? That's why I'm asking you the question. If, you'd had, if your children were darker skinned, how would you have tried to... I mean, if my children were darker skinned, um, I've wondered this a lot. I'd, I'm not sure that I would have had the fiction of race kind of thrust into my consciousness uh -huh. the same way. So I'd like to think that, um, that the arguments that I read in against race or racecraft would have resonated with me the same way. But the truth is that it, they didn't hit home until, until my daughter looked the way that she did. So I... I, I, I I would like to think that these are arguments that can be kind of, um, I would like to think that my experience could illustrate the, the illusions of race for others, that not everybody has to have a child born of, a, of what looks like a different race uh, from themselves to be able to kind of feel that these are compelling arguments, but I'm not sure that I myself would have been able to. Do you ever lie in bed and wonder if you're wrong? Probably not as much as my wife wishes I did on many <laughs> <laughs> But yes. uh Yeah, sure. 
But no, well, that's I, a, that's in the a, book I took... That's a legacy of your father that there's no getting out of, <laughs> yeah. really. In the, the, in, cert, in, the certitude. Certitude, for sure. But in the book, I do try to be honest about the fact that we really don't know nearly as much about genetics as we're going to. And it may be the case that... Um, that it's no longer possible to say that race is a social construct because somebody will find some smoking gun in India. I, I, I wouldn't say that that's not possible. And then I'd have, to, I'd have to reconsider what I mean about the idea that race isn't real because I'm on the margins of it. Because my, me and my children kind of... Sure. You know, are the exceptions that prove the rule or test the rule instead of yes. denying it. What do you think the purpose is? Because, I, again, I go back to the fact that you're so good at this. Do you think you choose the subject or, or, or this is just what you have to fucking write about? Because you're such a gifted writer, it, you could, and you've lived in a fascinating life, like you could write a memoir that's not about this stuff at all. Yeah. Uh, the dad memoir could have been a different, slightly different slant and you open yourself up to such a bigger uh, audience in a way. Right? No, it's tr- I mean... I kind of think that some subjects don't let you go, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, I don't think of race as being like a, a ghettoized subject or something like that. I think of it as kind of containing some of the most important things that we can deal with as humans. Well, the first book is about fear as much as it's about race, right? It's about the fear, it's about loyalty, it's about... Love, um, fear, loyalty, yeah. um, what you inherit. Yeah, it's about inheritance. I mean, some of these things, how does a self create, how do you create a self? How does a self define itself instead of being defined by the group? These are your universal concerns. And how much are you thinking about theme? Um, quite a lot. Although, you know, some things become clear to you once you work them through, you know, because the best way to see the universal is to be very, to, to very specifically kind of, you know that, you know that if you're in the business of movies, the best way to, to illustrate the universal is to burrow down into the specific, the particular. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, I find theme shows up along the way too. And sometimes, yeah, mm-hmm. years later, you mm-hmm. understand what you were after, but yours... Uh, because of the subjects you're tackling and because you have to know you're going to be, in a way, every reader is like the Oxford Don that you have to defend yourself to in That's your book. Tr- yeah, I mean, uh, you get a lot of readers who just viscerally reject the kind of argument I want to make. Um, and some will just say that, you know, even if race isn't real, they don't want to give up on it because that kind of community is, even if it's illusory, is what they want. And, 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 I, and you feel yeah, like that's, that's a red pill, blue pill kind of a thing. Kind of, yeah. You like, either feel that or you don't feel that, you know? And you, you want to make the more, what you consider the more bracing choice, which is... I do, yeah, absolutely. To live in the... I want the red think, pill. Right, I, yeah, you want the red pill. <laughs> the steak looks good, though. The steak, the, steak, looks, <laughs> the steak does look good. But even when he's chewing it, you, he has to know. Some part of him, once your eyes are open, <laughs> I mean, your eyes are open. Does writing come easily to you now? Um, I think that the, the more you do it, the better you get, the more you advance in your career, writing becomes in some ways harder because your standards change and your understanding of what good writing takes change. Um, so I, it was kind of much easier to write the first book because I was naive and I had no idea how hard everything is. Um, but at the same time, of course, you get better and, uh, and you kind of, uh, but the, the, the danger is just doing what you do well like over and over again. And that can happen a lot with magazine writing. You know, I also, I write for the New York Times magazine. And you can get in a situation where if you're good at writing a kind of profile, 
you can kind of just reproduce that over and over and over again, and you're not actually improving. That's why it's really important, I think, to change subject matter, to change themes and forms. Do you consider yourself a, an artist? Um, I tried to write a novel. I, I don't really think of it that way. I mean, uh, I, I think that the best nonfiction writing is an art. Me too. You know, I consider you an artist, so yeah. I like to. I, I, I just. I guess I try to. I try to think of myself. I like to think of myself as, as, um, as a writer, and, and and there's an artistic element to that, and there's also an artisanal, uh, craftsman yes. element to that that I really respect as well. You know. Yeah, you're. I mean, you're also a public intellectual, right? And yeah, and I, I find you know that's something that I really feel is important. I I, I wouldn't want to be a, a writer that was outside. That was just. I, I wouldn't want to just. Um, only be focused on the artistic aspects but of writing. But is it frustrating for you as a public intellectual that there are other public... I, I guess I say, obviously it's frustrating. What, what can one do to try to... Like the fact that, that you can't engage with some of the other public intellectuals writing about race... Where do you put that? It must be, well, so, it must be maddening. I write, I, you know, when I really wanted to engage with Ta-Nehisi Coates... I wrote a very long essay about his work, taking it very seriously, and I published it in the London Review of Books. And I didn't get to have the conversation directly with him, but it, it, it was a large conversation with a lot of other very uh, intelligent people on all sides of the debate. And so I, that's all you can do. You know, you, 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 you write it, and some people won't respond to you. But, uh, but, but I felt I was having the conversation. It was a fruitful conversation. Yeah, right. I've, I've read that piece. I've read all the things you've said and written um, about him because I think he's, I find myself, I think he's the, just the most persuasive, uh, yeah. the most per persuasive um, arguer um, about uh, the injustices and how the legacy carries forward. And I find you to be the best storyteller about a personal narrative in this. And your conclusions are so wildly disparate that it tells me something else about the legacy well, uh, yeah. in a way and how, you know, how that legacy affected these two people who each could have easily had the other point of view based on life ex experience. Well, yeah, I mean, that just, I, I mean, I think he is an extraordinarily compelling writer. I don't think you... Um, lose anything by acknowledging that uh, I, I think that I really arrive at very different conclusions than he does because I don't think that there's space in his vision of black life for a, for a black life like my own. That's where it started for me. It's, I, he wasn't describing what I recognized, um, and I and I thought that it was standing in for a total black experience. But you know, right? I heard him and Bomani. My I don't mm -hmm. know if you know who Bomani Jones is, but he's my dear friend. And oh, they were talking about football, right? They were yeah. talking about Vic. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I was listening to them talk about Vic, and at one point, Tana has the, I mean, Tana has makes makes a, a point where he's like, "Well, what I care about in this is the black man. That's where my sympathy goes." Yes, the dog. He wasn't dismissing Horace. He was saying, "You know, well, we treat um, all sorts of animals very badly, as badly as these dogs in America." And um, my, what I really care about is the fate of this person, this black man in America. And I was preparing to, when I was listening to that, I was preparing to have this conversation. I was like, my sense is Thomas would have a different take. Yeah, I just, I mean, I don't understand. I guess I can't feel that kind of group identity where 
the only salient point uh, about the whole thing is that Michael Vick um, shares, you know, ancestry with me. Well, an ex ancestors who share an experience and then a kind of a segregate. I mean, but if you read the first book, you experience a lot. You, your family experienced a bunch of stuff. Right. But I guess my father would... He also always raised us, you know, even if even if you're if this is your brother, if he's doing something wrong, it doesn't matter that he's your brother. What matters is that he did something wrong, and what matters is, you know, um, you 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 don't, someone doesn't someone's pain or their transgression doesn't become particularly meaningful because that's your relation or that's somebody from your group. You have to be interested, I think, in principles and larger values. So is yours like, a, I know you said liberal, but, but there are elements of like libertarian, old line, liberty, Some, yes. old line I mean, block libertarianism in your way of thinking, I'm asking? I'm sure there are. I mean, I don't think of myself as a libertarian because I think, you know, I live in France. I think that it's very important that universal health care, sure, <laughs> you yes. know, happen or that I really appreciate uh, universal child care. But there's a rug, uh, a real individualistic but there is. bent that is a libertarian, comes from like a kind of libertarian. I mean, what Michael Vick was doing yeah. in his backyard is disgusting. I'm sure that he was disproportionately punished. That bothers me because that's a miscarriage of justice. But what I'm worried about is not that this yeah. is a black man. If Peyton were doing, I mean, their point yeah, it would, it would, was it, if Peyton were doing that, he would have paid a fine, he would have done community service, and he would have been back playing football the next season. And I, when I listened to that, I was convinced by that. I was convinced like, that that was true. Sounded like, I mean, I think Vick got railroaded. Yes. But, you're but he was doing... He, but, uh, yes, he was doing something abhorrent. Yeah, I mean, was I abhorrent. love dogs. That's abhorrent. But, uh, but what, what he was doing. But, but I do think it's true that if it were Peyton Manning or Tom Brady, I mean, nothing would know, have happened well, to Tom them. Brady. I can't imagine anything happening to him. But I mean, it's also, it's a counterfactual. We don't know because they weren't doing that. You know, we don't know. We, but I, I, can, I, can, I can imagine that he was railroaded. Yes, me too. And punished for his larger lifestyle and lots of things. Yeah. Right. So there's a, that's a point of sort of like, uh, the only difference is you don't feel a, an automatic um, desire, desire to connect with his journey based on the fact that you would both be considered black men in America. No, well, I feel like I've had an extremely different journey in America than Michael Vick has had, for better and worse. I mean, <laughs> he, 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 he and I, it, the thing that connects, I, I just don't know. I don't know that we've had a, an experience that is really relatable in a lot of ways, you know? Sure. And yeah. he, he grew up impoverished, and I think that that's a, a very important aspect of how he grew up um, uh, that, that, that is unknowable to me, whether or not we both uh, would be considered black. Sure. That makes complete sense to me. I understand that. Um, do you think American is still a valid descriptor in identity? You don't really speak to it. And I was it is left. when you're outside of the country. Oh, go ahead. You were no, left. explain it. When you're outside of the country, you realize that you're really American, you know? And J James Walden is one of the writers who's written so brilliantly about this. But if you uh, are in Paris and somebody, I'm from New Jersey and somebody comes in from Kansas City, we have something that connects us that that white person will not have with a Frenchman and I won't have with somebody from Senegal. I mean, it's, we are the same people. We are from America and it means something. Um, when I'm back in America, I find myself feeling really, really alienated from, outside of like New York City. I feel that uh, 
I've also changed in a decade outside of the country and I feel like highly Europeanized and things seem strange to me and I kind of see America through an outsider's eyes and I also am alive to how extraordinarily different the regions are in America. America is several different countries really regionally. It's several different cultures. No doubt, but you feel uh, there's a validity to the to notion. A national identity? There's a notional difference in being, yes, owning the identity American more than owning the identity black man. Well, I think, yeah, I, I don't think that people can live without any kind of, um, any kind of labels. And I don't think Group that, ends. yeah, I, I don't think that most people are prepared to live completely atomized lives. Uh, and I do think national, you know, there are people that want to abolish borders, but I don't think that that's, I think that that's somehow less possible for a variety oh, of reasons, yeah, that, you know, I think but, that America is a multicultural society, always has been, always has been a mixed society before it was a country. It, it, was, a, it was mixed up colonies. It was Spanish, it was French, it was African, it was Native American. It was lots of different groups that weren't all considered white in the same way. Um, we're a mongrel people. And I think that uh, a kind of mongrelized multicultural American identity, um, I believe that is possible. And I believe that that would be meaningful, and it does mean something to be American as opposed to be French. Lastly, what is the... If you had to distill into a, a couple of sentences the utility of a post-racial identity, what would you say that that is? Well, okay, I don't... I, I just... That term has been kind of ruined, so I don't use post-racial myself, but I, the, the idea of it, well, that, that we could transcend racial categories, you know, okay. the, the idea that we could get to that place, um, the utility of that, I think, would be that it would free up a lot more... Um, capacity for us to work together in harmony if we weren't artificially separating ourselves and considering enormous parts of the population inferior to others. And I, and I just don't think that you can beat racism so long as you um, subscribe to the categories that, uh, that were created from racism. You know, so black, white, these impose kind of hierarchical positions. So I, I, you know, I think that if we could ever transcend race, then we would also be transcending racism, which is, which is it's just an evil. It's, a, it's an evil. On, on that, no one can. No, no one I'm interested in talking to could, uh, <laughs> would argue uh, with the idea that racism is evil. Um, listen, man, you're a brilliant person and you're a great writer, and um, uh, I, I wish you had a, a more qualified um, uh, person asking you the questions. But I, I did feel like, uh, knowing you were coming through New York, that it was worth having the conversation because maybe some people will go and pick up the book and really understand your argument in full but also get taken inside of your experience. You're an incredibly lucid and emotionally available writer and uh, someone who should be read much more widely than you are. You can find Thomas Chatterton Williams on social media, though not that often. <laughs> You're on Twitter under what name? Just your full name? Thomas Chatwell. It just doesn't fit. Are you on Insta also? I'm on Instagram, but my wife makes me have a private account. Okay, so try to figure that out. But. <laughs> But you can find him uh, uh, on, on Twitter. You can find me at Brian Koppelman in both places. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. And if you're mad at me for engaging in a conversation where I don't belong, uh, you're probably right. All right, thanks, everybody. Bye.